Oh, no. <laughs> Hello. Um, today's subject concerns a number of key concepts of the European Union, but I thought it would be fun. And I already posted a, um, a conference at noon earlier today here in this building on Libya and the intervention of Obama's speech, so we might mm -hmm. keep our global issues topic with the global issues of the day, and then we'll move to the signed reading. Uh, first of all, how many of you happened to see the Obama speech? you want to describe it for us? Um, it's, it, I'm trying to recall. It, it seemed as though he was... The pitch to the American public. Right. He was, he, he was trying to show that due consideration was given to his uh, decision to, uh, to lead. Uh, he characterized the United States as leading, although we, we sort of did it in conjunction with the French. Um, but then uh, stressed later on in the speech that our role would be um, would not be a, uh, necessarily uh, a leadership role that we would hand over the uh, execution of this mission to Which is NATO. Which said actually in the report to Congress, right? Within 48 hours after the start. Did you want to say something? No. Anybody else? There were two hands. I mean, you saw the end of this. Um, interestingly enough, there there is a War Powers Act and. It, right now, there's a debate going on. I'm involved with it partly on uh, the blog that I posted. Maybe some of you saw it. You learned uh, from yesterday that I argue that the war that he's complying with the War Powers Act, that he sent his report to Congress, and that the report triggered a 60-day deadline for Congress to authorize the intervention. War Powers Act has never really been invoked before. Although Gerald Ford, after the Maya Guez incident, did send a report to Congress. Uh, sort of after the whole incident was over. But this report that Obama sent within 48 hours, along with the comment at the end of his report that this was consistent with the War Powers Act, leads me and others to say, well, that implies that he's seeking to comply with US law on according to the statute. However, others would say that Obama would have said pursuant to the War Powers Act. In other words, required by the War Powers Act. And they argue that if Obama or, or administration official were asked, amazingly, no one's asked the president or Hillary Clinton or others, um, did your report to Congress trigger the War Powers Act? Uh, and presumably, the, the answer would be no, because that would require the president to withdraw troops within 90 days if no authorization is given within 60 days of the initial uh, either start of the hostilities or when the report was submitted. The, the text of the War Powers Act is really vague and hard to understand. Uh, people are also arguing that uh, legally the authority for the president to send troops in harm's way that the United States has not been attacked is not so clear. The Supreme Court cases that govern the subject upheld, for example, President Lincoln's blockade of the South after the United States government was attacked at Fort Sumter at the start, traditional start of the Civil War. And presidents have gone into places before we're attacked. But this is a situation where Gaddafi did not threaten the United States. In fact, he's been our ally for three years against Al-Qaeda. And also, we settled with him on the Lockerbie bombing, the Berlin disco bombing, et cetera, by um, a number of measures, including the fact that he's cooperating 
with U.S. intelligence to describe how he had been getting information on building nuclear weapons, or at least nuclear uh, plutonium and uranium and other forms of en enrichment used for nuclear power. Uh, so what we face then is a possible constitutional crisis if Congress either says, you have no right to go in here and we, we're going to defund you, or we're going to sue you in court, and the court takes the case. Uh, the Sorry, case. I was going to stop the topic. So. Okay. Um, you have an excerpt there from the speech. Yeah, um, from the speech. Mm, I think he mentioned. I'm looking for a part in here that where he mentions, like though he's being criticized because he didn't ask Congress for permission to do it, and then in the newspaper it said that he did ask. Um, I guess some of the higher ups in Congress. We well, consulted them. He consulted not them. Not just the higher and ups. There are about twenty congressional leaders at that meeting. Thank you. Um, and that that was deemed by. I thought it said that the Supreme Court deemed that okay. So that's what I was looking. Supreme for. Court. No, it, it hasn't ruled on the question ever, as far as the War Power Act is concerned. Um, see. Consultation is something U.S. presidents routinely do with Congress, but they don't necessarily give you a choice. And generally, the atmosphere, like the atmosphere is now, is that if you undermine the president, you're threatening American interests. Because the president did commit troops, and the president, it's, it would appear, has the legal authority to do so. But there is a question as to whether there there's some legal regulations coming up. and. As we approach the 60-day deadline, if they're still involved, and war has a way of being unpredictable, it can be unpredictably bad when you expect it to be good, and vice versa, or it can be predictably whatever. And people are making all sorts of predictions these days. But uh, as that 60-day deadline appears, we're 11 days into it, so 49 days from now, if there is no congressional authorization, probably somebody will sue a U.S. court under the War Powers Act and either the, the court can say, yes, uh, it was properly triggered, and the law is constitutional, and you must withdraw within 30 days. It would be interesting if Congress then authorized in the next 30-day period, because that's not exactly what the statute says. Or the court could rule that the law is unconstitutional on the theory that it's a congressional resolution that doesn't require presidential signature. Or they could rule that the, the plaintiff would not have standing to sue because it's, it's a political question. So it says here, all right, Mr. Obama said he had authorized the military action only after consulting the bipartisan leadership of Congress, which the White House officials have maintained is sufficient for what they have described as a limited military campaign. Do you know who they're talking about with the White House? Who are the White House officials? Well, that's because they don't name them because it's, it's done confidentially. Okay. White House officials? Well, I know, but... So it, sound, it sounds as though the White House has not invoked the War Powers Act, although people will say, why did you send that report? And why did you say it was consistent with the War Powers Act? I think the White House you know, is worried that things may not go so well and that they don't want to be forced to start withdrawing and be done with it by, within 90 days. But what do they say? Is this a short-term mission or a short-term involvement? Oh, um. In other words, it's just an air war. Therefore, the argument is with just an air war, they're not really in hostilities. This is an argument that I discuss on the blog. Um, I read it earlier. Um, 
Why don't you? I can, I can read it if you want. Oh, go ahead. I mean, there's a lot to kind of sift through. Um, even as President Obama on Monday described a narrow role for the, role for the United States in a NATO-led Operation Libya, the American military has been carrying out an expansive and increasingly persistent air campaign to compel the Libyan army to turn against Colonel Muammar al-Qaddafi. Of course, these are, it is said to be a fair number of mercenaries who are doing it for the money. And as long as they're not physically <coughs> threatened, I guess they're happy to get these huge fees that they get. I did, um, in both of the newspaper articles that I read about the speech, it did um, reinforce that, Never mind, I forgot. Obama said, because contrary to the claims of some, American leadership is not simply a matter of going it alone and bearing all the burden ourselves. Real leadership creates the conditions and coalitions for others to step up as well, to work with allies and partners so that they share their share of the burden, bear their share of the burden, and pay their share of the costs, and to see that the principle of justice and human dignity is upheld by all. So that's, that's a statement that we've, we're following the UN Security Council resolution, which is a whole a second area of debate. We're not going it alone, and that gives us legal cover. Uh, he also because said he doesn't want to overthrow Gaddafi. He doesn't think that that's America's place. He just wants to defend the Libyan. Well, that's what the UN Security Council resolution says, but he and Hillary Clinton both have said we, a few days back, you know, Gaddafi must go. Oh, that's what, that's what? the U.S. stand on it, but they don't think Well, they have said Gaddafi must go well, in they interviews. Parsed it. He parsed it in his speech. He was saying our military role will be to protect lives, but politically, through sanctions, whatever, we're moving to remove Gaddafi. And so he made Which is a, a violation of the U.S. Charter. He tried to parse it. Without so that, force, so that, I guess. Yeah. The, the, the attempt to remove Gaddafi was not to be carried out through a military that's the way he couched. Well, uh, to the extent that this operation intends to remove him, that's a violation of Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter, as well as this particular Security Council resolution, which only authorized force necessary to save lives and bans ground troops, which presumably would be necessary really, A, to save lives, and B, to secure the post-conflict peace, and any additional peace building or state building operations. So um, could everybody put their electronics away? <coughs> A lot of you have them out, please. Thank you. Um, just to take a poll in the class, what, uh, what do you think? Are you in favor? Are you opposed? Do you think it's legal? Do you think it's illegal? Do you think the president deserves the benefit of the doubt, even though you may have some doubts? Yeah. I would say the last one, like, I give the benefit of the doubt, but at the same time, it's kind of like, you know, just to watch CNN the other day and see Wolf Blitzer, you know, all of a sudden, you know, calling suicide bombers courageous because they were on a, you know, on part of the rebels. And, you know, I question the fact Wait, that. Su which suicide bombers were these? I can't remember what it was, but it was just a news story they're saying, uh, it was basically where they were saying, uh, he said, I believe he was a. Uh, noble man gives his life in the names of the rebels and you know basically but all it was was a suicide bombing so I, I missed that part I haven't watched CNN that much I, I, watch think, I think it's maybe like two or three days ago I caught it on there okay and uh, I mean, just but, I mean, you favor the operation or what I, said, I, mean, you said I guess I favor I favor it in, in terms of I favor in terms of you know wanting to stop 
you know, the slaughter and having them get killed. But in terms of like the scale in which it's portrayed, as you know, it's a lot of other countries out there, that, a lot of other opposition movements facing a lot more, a lot larger threats, and you know, we're not involved in there. And considering you know, Gaddafi and him being an ally just a couple of years ago and coming to New York and Donald Trump letting him lease his land and McCain going to meet him in a tent and everything and you know basically I don't know about that you follow CNN pretty closely <laughs> I mean I guess for I mean for a couple of years I did follow CNN pretty closely but it was just I mean like I said I just always I always question you know the motives behind things like that you know because you never really know what the true motives are that's and, and how it happened how the decision was made to switch mm, exactly after um, fiddling while Paris burns, there were a couple of editorials. There was a bunch of appeals from the Arab League, from uh, particularly Secretary of State Clinton and Ambassador Susan Rice, to change the policy. Um, one wonders the, the role played by refugees going to Italy and whether there was an appeal from Europe. You know, we we've been supporting you in Afghanistan. Now it's time for you to take the lead. And we'll take over eventually, but you've got all those Tomahawk missiles. We don't. It's interesting that the Obama's policy is close to Clinton. <coughs> Clinton and Bosnia, and especially in Kosovo, in 94, 5 and 99, 1999 respectively, did air attacks from high altitude with no risk to any American soldier. And not a single US casualty occurred in both of those wars. Interesting, like this time, pilots were shot down, or I guess this was not shot down, but mechanically failure. Yeah. And well, all of them were saved. So I guess they, a big priority for the US, if any, anyone goes down, do whatever you can to save them. And one of these two pilots, I guess, was saved by rev the rebels. Mm -hmm. That's they actually, actually sent them some laser-type missiles towards the area where the rebels gathered around one of the US soldiers. To make sure that what that nobody got in the Yeah, I don't know, but I mean, they ended up getting a hold of them anyways, but said they treated them like king. Uh huh. Well, um, you know, George W. Bush' approach was, of course, combat troops in Afghanistan and Iraq, especially Iraq. And my speculation is that Republicans are highly influenced by considerations of patriotism more than Democrats. And so when Republican presidents say, we're going to fight a war, they'll put troops on the ground, whereas neither Clinton nor Obama, their base being much more pacifist, much more anti-war. Uh, they, if they're going to fight war, it's going to be war on the cheap. And paradoxically, uh, the, and this may not be really true, but it, there is a coincidence going on. But paradoxically, that means that the Democrats will cause more civilian casualties for the other side because Tomahawk missiles and bombs from 50,000 feet are not as accurate as troops on the ground who can distinguish between civilians and, and combatants. The so-called slaughters that were going on before we gotten involved was basically one city with weapons of the Libyans that are not particularly accurate. Now maybe they did target them just at civilian quarters and certainly that's the spin that would have been provided. But one, can, one must wonder whether this was really you know, false pretenses. Because A, Gaddafi only threatened to kill lots of everybody uh, in Benghazi, I think it was. But he didn't actually go forward. He did say, we'll do a ceasefire. Now, he didn't do the ceasefire. But they only gave him 
10 minutes or a half an hour or half a day to get a ceasefire implemented. Um, and also, the way we're fighting this war is not with troops on the ground, which is really the way to save lives, not by shooting Tomahawk missiles from above. So there's clearly a disconnect there. And finally, one has to wonder why they don't say explicitly, OK, we're following the War Powers Act. If you really do want to get out quickly, why not just say, we're going to follow the War Powers Act? And then you can actually even blame Congress if you have to pull out, because Congress will get the blame for not authorizing the mission. It seems really, to me, strange the way US presidents say, we're, we're consistent with the War Powers Act, but we're not pursuing the War Powers Act. And that's the sort of thing lawyers will do to parse, to say that, you know, what is the difference between consistent and, and pursuant? Anyone? Consistent? Yeah. Consistent is the word he used in his report to Congress. Um, report to Congress gave, you know, the legal authority, what's the mission, and how long going to stay. Those are the th three things you have to report. He did report it. And he said it's consistent with the War Powers Act. Doesn't that sound to you? Sounds to me like the War Powers Act is being triggered with this time clock that's never been enforced in US history before. And yet, the quote that one of you read, I guess from this paper, uh, stated that you know we're doing this, we're doing that, but no, nothing in the speech about the War Powers Act. Speaking for 28 minutes, Obama addressed a number of audiences. Um, the United States will not be able to dictate the pace and scope of this change. But I believe this movement of change cannot be turned back and that we must stand alongside those who believe in the same core principles that have guided us through many storms, our opposition to violence directed against one's own citizens, our support for universal rights, including the freedom of people to express themselves and to choose their leaders, our support for freedom, for governments that are ultimately responsible for the aspirations of their people. That sounds an awful lot like the neoconservative agenda of George W. Bush, just not without troops on the ground. Without troops on the ground. And I believe Bush did get authorization for the US force in Iraq. It wasn't a declaration of war. It was just saying, if you decide to go to war, you have Congress's permission. And not, I don't think Clinton or Obama got the authorization. Is it fair to say the Republicans are divided on the issue? Because certainly the neoconservatives would be uh, sympathetic. Yeah, the and the realists and the Republicans would be opposed. Right. And, and, and people go back and forth between realism and neoconservatism. Right. A, a true realist would say, it's none of our business what kind of government they have. Do they support US interests or not? Can we do anything about it, effective or not? Those are basically the two questions a realist would ask. A neoconservative would say, is this right? Is this moral? What is US power for? It's worth a try. You're never going to be guaranteed success in war. You're never going to know what's going to happen. All right. Were you first? Yes. I had a question. Uh, last lecture, you mentioned that the time in the fine print, if he doesn't go to Congress, he has 60 days. And then 30 days after that to withdraw. He doesn't get authorization. Within 60 days, he has to withdraw within 30 more. 30 days after that 60 day period. If the War Powers Act is going to be relevant. And it's one of these odd situations where no one has been able to test its constitutionality. Um, and I think this time, if things don't go well, that the constitutionality of the law will be tested. But a lot of people say it's not going to be, 
the court's not going to rule on it, which effectively means the War Powers Act is meaningless, which is what it's been since it was enacted in 1973, led by Senator Jacob Javits uh, of New York at the time in response to the fact that the Vietnam War was approved for initial uh, incursion by the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which I guess was a resolution, um, not signed by the President. But uh, it gave authority to go in, but it ended up going way beyond what everyone expected. Now, the Vietnam War was a lot less time than Iraq or Afghanistan, but we had half a million troops there at one point, and close to 70,000 American deaths. And so the scale and intensity is nothing like these wars. Uh, in many ways, I find it odd that, you know, th to think that we had half a million troops in Vietnam, obviously a much more populated country than Afghanistan or Iraq, and we have far fewer troops and far much less tr casualties. The other thing that, you know, Ob Obama's done following the Clinton uh, and Obama pattern of, of, of minimizing U.S. casualties is to use unmanned, they're called drones, but, you know, unmanned missiles which kill a lot of civilians and which, you know, someday is going to haunt us because someday somebody else is going to have unmanned, or even man, you know, missiles. I guess drones are, are, are a kind of missile except that it's precision guided on a computer screen. But I actually don't even know what the difference between it. I mean, a drone is a small missile, I guess, whereas what's, what's a Tomahawk missile? That's an unmanned no, no, missile, too. A drone, you can drone actually is drive it from the camera, if I'm not mistaken. But the drone is an aircraft. It's remotely. It's, 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 it's not a rocket. It's, it's, no, it's, it's, it's a jet plane. Right, it flies around every certain amount of time. OK. But the point is the drone is like a missile, traditional rocket missile, in that you're fighting without troops. Right. And so you're not putting troops in harm way. So it's much less politically sensitive, particularly if you're a Democratic pres president, capital D, where you have a lot of people who are opposed to war. Now, there are many of the people in the Democratic Party who are divided also, not just the Republican Party that's divided. There are many Democrats who also favor a strong US policy on behalf of democratic values to save lives and so forth. Yeah. You had your hand up. Yeah, I, I would say I, I'm opposed to war. And I just think All it's circumstances? A, in 99% of circumstances. What about World War II? I just, 99% or so. Well, which, say is that the 1% or the No, 99? that's like a half percent on that. <laughs> I don't know. So you, you're but, not a pacifist, but you are. Yeah, you would, I think you can actually negotiate and talk to people. And those that you can't talk to, you know, I think you should just take out a person instead of taking out uh, people that are not, that are innocent. Well, what what would that accomplish to assassinate a Saddam well, or Gaddafi? Well, because Aside from the fact Saddam that it's illegal. crazy. <laughs> it is illegal under U.S. law. I know, but uh, they've taken out our leaders right here. You know, they've taken out Dr. President Kennedy. Who took them out? Uh, the, I feel, my personal opinion, you know, <laughs> Herbert Hoover. Uh, well, Regina. that's our people. But I'm just saying, we kill our own leaders. So, I mean, you can, you know, not we, but other people have chosen to kill our leaders. Uh, Martin Luther King, I mean, he was a uh, But they were foreigners that killed. Pardon me? It wasn't a foreign plot. No, but it was considered a threat to U U.S. security. You know, U.S. the the good old boy way. 
You're saying that elements of the U.S. government assassinated our leaders and what? What's the point? They're corrupt. I just, okay, but what's the point? point? Well, what, well, what my point was... What, what does that have to do with avoiding war? Well, I think that it... What does it have to do with avoiding war? I think you can talk to people and negotiate and try or do sanctions or divest. Uh, there are other means to uh, get a person's attention. And those always work? Well, it's worth a try. You can't, if you don't try it, you can't say if it works or not if they didn't okay. bother to try it. And, and I, again, I feel that President Obama, I give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, I think that Did sometimes you get the you, doubt? Pardon me? Did you give Bush the benefit of the doubt? Well, he didn't, he didn't do enough uh, investigation to me. When they found that there were no weapons of mass destruction, I think America should have left. I mean, they didn't need to stay there as long as they're Even still Even though Al-Qaeda was killing lots of people. No, I still don't think we should have stayed there. If that We weren't there for the purpose in which he said we were there. So I think that should have came back and there should have been some discussion of whether to proceed or to pull back instead of just uh, beating a dead horse, you know. Other views? Sir? Anybody? Yeah? I support um, the involvement in Libya. Okay. I, um, there was like a debate on whether or not Libyans had a genuine interest in democracy or whether or not they, uh, the rebels just wanted to take power from Gaddafi and maybe rule in their own way. But um, from what the way they've behaved and the way the Gaddafi forces have behaved have led me to believe at least that the Libyans really are being oppressed. And I know that six or four um, New York Times reporters were captured by Libyan forces and they were, um, the only reason they weren't even killed was because that they were Americans. And the, li the driver that was a Libyan w just disappeared randomly, so who knows what happened to him. And uh, so I know these uh, Gaddafi forces are just murdering people, or at least I believe that they're just murdering people. I mean, they don't really have any good reason politically or like um, religiously to do that. They're just doing it for the money. And uh, so I believe that the oppression is real, and I really think that when you have a conscience like America has it, that you get involved in that kind of stuff. We never do anything like that. We, I mean, like what to other people? I mean, some people haven't made all the decisions, but I want to say that we, you know. 100,000 Iraqis died. Civilian Iraqi, Iraqis? At least. Because of like the... Because we started a war. Not 100,000. Saddam made his point, he didn't have to kill any more people. He did kill many people, mm -hmm. probably more than I. And he started a war where a million people died. Yeah. So we're not as bad as him. Yeah, but that's, I'm not talking about that situation because I wasn't as informed for that, so I don't, really don't have an opinion, I don't know. But for this one, for the purpose of this war, I, I think that I, I support our involvement in it, but I also like the idea of us leaving, but nobody else wants to step up and, and take it on. So Why don't we take it on in Bahrain? After all, Saudi Arabia went in them massacre their civilians. There were uh, snipers in Tahrir Square in Egypt. About a thousand people were assassinated by snipers. Their methods were working. Nobody, none of the other countries' leaders have reacted this, the way that this leader has. They, the Egyptian government assassinated a thousand people in Tahrir Square with the snipers. Well, I don't, I don't know. I think they need to be kind of physical. They can, they can overthrow the government without going into civil war, 
so you kind of have the opportunity to hesitate militarily. Whereas, like she said, in Libya, well, we got everything we want in Egypt because the army's now in charge. Exactly, and, and the army just goes on Facebook and sees who's who's organized the protests, and then they, now they're arresting all those student leaders. And I mean, I, and I other agree, leaders. I agree with what she said that you know if, if these people are indeed being oppressed and are about to be victims of you know mass murder, genocide, etc., then I think you know we should intervene. And I also think, like you, you said last lecture, the president I think is stupid. I think. Everyone learned a valuable lesson from the lack of intelligence with the rock. So I'm I'm confident that whatever intelligence people told him, look, it's some crazy stuff that's gonna take place if we don't do anything in the next, you know, however amount of time. He's about the, the election's taking place next year. I don't think he would throw away his election, his reelection rather, over some blunder without the proper intelligence and without, you know, making the right decision. So I think, you know. Many presidents have blundered before. He it's wouldn't true. be the first or the last. True. <laughs> true. And true. you know, it, you can be very, very intelligent and still be a fool. But what do you do? Do you, do you sit back and wait for people to get killed and then who says that, who come are, in after the fact? Wh where were these massacres? I never saw any. I, I don't know. I didn't see any either. That's right. They put they spun a pretty good yarn there. There was some. There was some people killed, like in all wars. CNN said they had. They saw some evidence of mass some evidence. Somewhere, but but I mean, they didn't show mass it. murders, firing that's squads. That's right. what they were trying to prevent was mass murder. Right. Know. Right. But it hadn't even occurred yet. Well, good. But I think that's. I think that's the whole point. Well, if it hadn't occurred, why did we intervene? Because the threat was real. But I, I think real. you said we shouldn't. I mean, I thought you were opposed to war. No, but I, but in, in, in <laughs> for people are about to be well, that, that, now we got no. World War Two. We got Libya. That's one. I don't even remember World War Two. I don't even know the dynamics. See, I mean, of World War II, we presumably have studied it. I, I feel like we're we're, we're, we're using our air. Using our air. Using our air supply. I do, and I wasn't even alive yet. But I saw so many movies growing up. I know my dad was, well, he's in the Korean But anyway, I don't really recall that. But I think if, people, if people's lives are in jeopardy, yes, you intervene. You know, I, You're I, going I, from I, pacifist to neoconservative. You have people that are pursuing democracy, they're protesting, yeah. and then you have people fighting that with violence. Like, <laughs> I have the upper hand with guns and stuff? You can't let that happen. Yeah. We do it all the time. Anywhere from 10 to 40 wars in the world. Most of, most of those wars we never get involved. And many of them we give guns to one side, and the other side gets guns, and, and that increases the killing. Do they get as much like, press as the yeah. press have? So we only go in where the press decides to cover? I mean, obviously the press is So the press is the one that decides where we go to war? Could you argue a point that they do? Like, Leadership would say you make a judgment on the merits, not on what the press decides they could cover. But if the press has decided to cover a certain war, a certain uprising, or whatnot. Your point is well taken. I mean, do you know what I'm trying to say, though? I think what you're saying is there's a CNN effect. Yeah. yeah. I feel like also, nobody mentions that it seems to me, from my perspective, the places that get the most press are places that have natural resources and, and things that are too. And that's interesting. To our advantage. The press seems to follow wherever the White House. Because let's says, face it, these disputes oh, take place. This is where we're interested in intervening. Well, let's say that's what we're, where we're going to intervene, that's where we're going to get a story. But, you know, Rwanda, where 800,000 were killed in a bunch of few weeks. Exactly. Whoever heard of that? Who, uh, or whoever heard of Tajikistan? Or whoever heard of Mozambique? Exactly, that's what I'm saying. Well, Bush said that that was like the biggest thing on his 
don't even know who the president was, but the president said president. that uh, Clinton, Clinton. Was, was the biggest thing on his presidential career was not getting involved with that. Right. And he was CNN didn't cover it very much, so it was reported in the New York Times, but only you read the New York Times, right? Yeah. But I mean, like, if the press discovers something and the American citizens know about it, they're going to start talking. I mean, well, they knew about Libya for a month and nothing happened for a month. An interesting puzzle is was the United States gearing up to intervene the whole time, making deals, or was this really a 24 to 48 hour decision just when Italy started complaining of refugees? And by the way, should we be getting involved because Italy doesn't want Libyan refugees? And to what extent is this politically motivated? That is, Sarkozy, who was pushing this on the United States, has terrible re-election troubles. And he's the president of France. And the, president, the prime minister of Italy, what's his name? Berlusconi. Silvio Berlusconi is in all kinds of trouble for saying, I couldn't handle 32 prostitutes in two months. That's an exaggeration. But he didn't, you know, doesn't sort of implicitly deny that he had, well, not only that, underage. Right, but you know, two presidents, the two most directly involved in Europe complaining about this war are the two, one's a prime minister, one's a president, but the heads of government are in trouble politically. And both face not only legal trouble in one case, although I think Sarkozy may have legal trouble, but also re-election issues. What would be wrong if we did get involved? What would be? What would be wrong if we never got involved? Nothing. I mean, if you believe that, according to the pacifist philosophy, that you end up killing more people than you save, that war is very, very expensive, and we can't afford it for our part here. Uh, it's there for to fight, and once we get involved, we'll be sucked in for 50 years. Uh, if we don't care what kind of government takes over, and by the way, there's so much al-Qaeda in Libya that we will care who takes over, if only to give huge amounts of military aid to whoever takes over, and if, if they don't take our military aid, you can be sure there'll be a covert action to make sure that this government doesn't stay in power very long. Because Al-Qaeda has the number, largest number of recruits in Afghanistan from Libya. Now, 9-11, they all came from Yemen and Saudi Arabia. But the Libyans and Afghanistan are the biggest part of Al-Qaeda there. And there are two major Al-Qaeda factions in North Africa. Al-Qaeda, the Maghreb, based in Algeria primarily, and the Libyan Independent Fighting Force, which is an Al-Qaeda group. And these groups may be part of these rebels, or they may not. So you can be sure the United States is going to be very involved in Libya for a long time, so long as al-Qaeda is still running loose, which means we may be intervening in spite of that fact that Gaddafi was fighting those people. Or maybe we intelligence said he's not doing a good job fighting those people, although from all accounts, he was doing a very good job fighting those people. Uh, just like the Algerian military dictatorship has been doing so. Because Al we don't want democracy in Algeria because the Islamist political parties would win. Do you believe we shouldn't become involved in World War I and World War II? Do I? Yeah. I'm, I'm, no, I've supported both of those. You do believe we should. Yeah, I'm not a pacifist. 
I was making the argument. I was just making the argument, though. I was answering a question, not what I think. Right. What is the argument for not getting involved? Right. And those are the arguments. Those are not my arguments. Okay. But it just seems to me that you, you seem profoundly pessimistic about the possibility that, say, Egypt could result in some sort of. I am very pessimistic that you're going to bring democracy in the short to medium term to any of these countries. In Egypt, the army is in charge. The army is repressive. The army saw how social networking produced all these spontaneous protests. And now they're using social networking to make sure these people don't protest against them. And the army is committed to some kind of democratic elections. And they did hold a referendum about nine days ago or so in Egypt saying, we're going to have this referendum. And maybe even the Islamic Brotherhood will be allowed to run in Egypt, which is an Islamist force. But nothing to do with al-Qaeda. The army won't have allow that. And the Muslim Brotherhood looks like it's going to play, be quite pragmatic. Right. We'll see how that turns out. Um, in these Arab societies, the problem of political stability was very profound for many decades. And leaders like Gaddafi and Saddam found a sultanistic national security state solution. What does that mean? Sultanism is a personalized regime, a, mil a personal dictator who appoints family members to most of the key jobs, which does not create good institutions like an army that can overthrow you. Saddam did that too. I mean, or if you have a strong army, it's a conscript army, so the masses of people are not really in power, and the officers are all loyal to you, and they're all from your tribe, or certainly your branch of Islam. So all the officers in Saddam's army were Sunni, even though the majority Muslim group in that area was Shia. Second, um, national security state means that you just don't allow any group to get too powerful. And you hardly allow free speech. And you disappear people, execute them, repress them if they start organizing for democracy. In other words, no dissent, no freedom allowed. And this solution stopped the coup d'etat syndrome in Iraq, which was every six months from Iraq's independence in the 30s. It was one of those few post-colonial countries that got freedom before World War II and then was reoccupied during World War II by the Germans and then the British. Uh, countries like Libya has the national security state. Tunisia had the national security state. Egypt had the national security state with Sultanism, Mubarak. Before him, Sadat. Before him, Nasser. Um, and it was attempted in Pakistan by Zia al-Haq uh, with some success, but he was assassinated. It was attempted before him by Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. And he was effectively assassinated by the military in a trumped up set of charges in a murder plot that, for which he was convicted. So Pakistan. The military doesn't want to be controlled by a sultan. It's too strong. It's already independent. Whereas Nasser, Mubarak, uh, Sadat were former military officers. So the army trusted them. And he gave the army all kinds of powers. Um, such a regime might have succeeded in Argentina, except for the fact that uh, they were always juntas. Latin America, they never. They often can't agree on one person. So the Army, Navy, and the Air Force each has a representative in their military dictatorships. 
and they balance each other off, and they all do the same kind of things. Uh, it's very convenient for powerful states, especially imperial power states, to have a strong army that they can do business with. The United States has funded Egypt, Tunisia, uh, but not Libya, and Iraq before Saddam turned against us with heavy foreign aid lending. Now, in order to uh, manage this crisis, the United States intelligence agencies have, first of all, an unprecedented series of uprisings to contend with. Each country has its own particular characteristics, like has been mentioned. And the US interest is not necessarily on the side of democracy. Thus, Obama has generally waited and waited and waited. And even in this major intervention, he waited a month between the time of the uprising started and this campaign, which is now only 11 days old. So in a course in global issues, I, I try to bring up current events when they're pretty dramatic, like last night's speech, because I think it's, you know, it's topical, it's appropriate. Anyone else have any other questions or comments they want to make? Just a show of hands, how many people think we'll be in Libya a year from now? One, two, three, four. How many people think the War Powers Act will be invoked and that we'll be out total uh, 90 minus 11 days, 78 days? One, two, three, four. Some people voting twice. How many people think that the United States will pull out, but maybe in a half a year? It depends on the fate of Gaddafi to a large extent. So you think we're there to get rid of him? Oh, I think it's certainly in our interest that he fall at this point. Why? What did, why should we? He was fighting Al Qaeda for us. Can't we just get him to say, okay, we'll have democratic elections? We said Mubarak must go. We didn't trust him to hold democratic elections. So. Looks like Muammar Gaddafi is going to be removed if we feel that he can't do a deal with us to leave quietly. So what, what I want to understand is, I, I've talked to some other fellows about this and asked them what they thought. You know, people Old like me? I didn't want to say that, but <laughs> they're probably about your age, just older than me. And they talk about- Give me like 30. They talk, yeah, 30 years old. They, they say, <laughs> They say that uh, the sky's the limit. Back, back when the Saudi Arabians did the oil embargo in the 70s, that not just Saudi Arabia, well, not just Saudi, but you know, they had the largest wells. They, um, the Libyans, we were, we were getting a significant amount of oil from Libya, and that's when our relationship. Well, back then, we didn't import much oil ourselves in the United right. States, and a lot of our oil came from Venezuela, Nigeria, and Mexico. But, but what these guys were basically saying, from their opinion, was that. That Gaddafi has been like buddy buddy with us for all well, these with our years, oil companies. right? For all these years, and all of a sudden, you know, what I don't understand is well, I, we did have sanctions on him after these terrorist attacks, especially Lockerbie, mm -hmm. and and those sanctions were imposed by the UN, so he theoretically couldn't sell much of his oil. Now, he was able to sell plenty of oil, but not as much as you can sell when you've got a full access to the world market and international oil companies. You know, have access to the oil. Well, basically, what I'm saying is, 
from my understanding, he's been up to the same stuff for all of these years. So why is it that just now, in 2011, because of the uprising, the president is like, oh, he's got to go. I think because it's a chance to get. They've always wanted to get rid of him, like we always wanted to get rid of Milosevic, oh, so like we always wanted to get rid of Saddam. Mm -hmm. So this is our golden opportunity right here. Yeah. Okay. But um, there's no need to get rid of him. It's just kind of like a lot of the key elites in the foreign policy establishment wanted to get rid of these long time, long time serving sultanistic dictators. They're like sultans of the Ottoman Empire. I don't think they're going to be able to get him out of there without going on the ground. I mean, that's just rules of engagement from my understanding. Possibly so. We'll have the French do it for us. Uh, we should. Well, that's what I think. I think we should. Why do we have to get rid of him? I don't yeah, know. I, I don't know if we really have to. I'm not really. I need to look into it more before I form an opinion about that. But I, I definitely don't think we should be on the ground. It's not so easy. I mean, these guys like Saddam. They have seconds and thirds, you know, that look just like them. Correct. Um, plus, you know, he's got his underground bunker. Um, but you now the news media seems to be able to take his photographs every night. <laughs> Who knows when those will really take him. Well, I mean, they say here he is today speaking, giving a speech, right? I mean, anybody can. I can record you today and put it on tomorrow and say, here you are today. You can record it today. Well, so you think most journalists, journalists are so corrupt that they would lie? If they got an AK-47 to their head, they sure will. Yeah, but this is, this is downtown Atlanta. CNN. Oh, are you talking about here? Then? Yeah, so, well, that's more than once that. I, I, don't, end I mean, I don't trust the media at all. You know, you know what they say: believe none of what you hear, half of what you see. So, you know, I, I think the media is controlled by interests that put what we wanted, what they want us to hear out there. I don't think it's controlled. I think it's a clever manipulation, and the government is very clever at how to use the media. First of all, you know, if you want the interview, you've got to be friendly to us, right. and they don't grant interviews to people who are unfriendly. Second of all, they pitch, they coach the media on what's the big story coming up. We're going in there. Well, you don't want to be the first media outlet to miss the story. You know, where US troops go, the media follows. The US doesn't want to go to a certain place. The media is not going to go there, even if a million people are being killed. Look, we had all kinds of famines in the Horn of Africa and Ethiopia the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and not a peep of coverage. And hundreds of thousands to millions of people starved to death in Ethiopia. And nobody heard about it, and nobody much cared. Foreign aid agencies went in. That was a major story. And then they wiped out the farming sector to a significant extent from all this free food. If you're a farmer, you can't pay your seed fertilizer and irrigation costs or whatever if you've got to compete with all these free handouts. Anyone else want, want to make a comment? OK. Um, let's talk about a couple of concepts from today's reading. Uh, we have some time. Um, no, hopefully one of these things will work. Today they talked again about the Council, Council of Europe. Oh, not very good. And the European Union. Who can remind us, what is the difference between the Council of Europe and the European Union? Council Nobody? of Europe is the uh, Council of the Heads of State, the member nations. No, that's the European Council of the European Union. That's oh, very confusing. That's okay, I just heard um, I'm 
Unfortunately, these markers don't work. If anyone has one, I'd be grateful for it. Um, Council of Europe, 47 member countries, promotes democracy, rule of law, and human rights. Been in existence since 1949. European Union, 27 countries in existence since 1959, primarily and originally focused on the common market, the economic market. Uh, one has lofty ideals, the first Council of Europe, but no commitment to particular action beyond the treaties that they have had important impacts. The other focused on actions, uh, focused on decision making, not requiring a majority rule, not requiring unanimity, like the Council of Europe originally required. If you've got a decision-making apparatus with a lot of member states, and you have a unanimity principle, this is on the midterm, is that an efficient or an inefficient decision rule? Inefficient. Inefficient, why? Because by the time everybody agrees on something, it's so diluted that typically it's If you can get agreement on anything, it's the lowest common denominator, it takes a lot of time. If you have a majority decision-making rule, you just need a majority. And decisions are taken, and action can occur. Second, with respect to the economy, there was a lot of things that could be done to integrate Europe through common economic institutions, starting with the reduction of tariffs, duties, and quotas, which were restraints to international trade. Um, what's interesting is that when the European Union was started. It shared some of the longer-term vision of a unified Europe uh, and a common heritage. And that kind of got lost in the political differences over time as the European Union tried to expand into broader, broader activities, especially by the time of the Copenhagen Consensus when it shared the goals of the Council of Europe in human rights, rule of law, and democracy. But Europe is a region which has many shared characteristics, to, enough to the point that it transcended national impulses in the early days. Uh, it must be remembered, of course, that um, for everything that is really great in European history, there is also a very dark side. So the Enlightenment, which increased rationality and scientific productivity and modern knowledge, also gave a superiority complex which led to colonialism. And so the author argues that colonialism kind of went hand in hand with the desire to improve productivity. And since these African and Asian territories, and to less, much lesser extent the Caribbean, uh, were there for the taking by a region which benefited from the technological progress that resulted from enlightenment thinking and, and methodology, they took it. Um, similarly, uh, Christianity unified Europe in the Middle Ages, sometimes called the Dark Ages. Uh, and the, the good thing is that it, it you know, created some standards, even though they are not modern, as we understand the term modern. Uh, it did take the edge off of some of the, the, the aspects of life, but that also led to religious fanaticism in the Crusades and led to wars of religion. Um, now, the European Union, as you know, has had successive enlargements, and these enlargements went in stages. Uh, among these stages were the uh, effort to create a common currency, a common foreign policy, uh, and now a common constitution, which they don't 
they, they didn't pass the Constitution as such, but they do now have uh, something, a type of government that looks more like a sovereign uh, enterprise. The foreign policy failed. And one of the reasons you could argue that we're involved in Libya today is the European defense community, which is now called the European Common Security Policy, was unable to respond to the genocides in Bosnia. It fiddled while Rome burned. And so the United States eventually came in. Now, why we didn't come in earlier is a matter of some high degree of resentment by some people in Bosnia and elsewhere in the former Yugoslavia. But we came in because we essentially manage and control NATO as by far the biggest and most powerful member state. Not only do we have, are we more powerful than any state in NATO, NATO, we spend more on defense than the rest of the world put together spends on defense, and then some. So that's equally true of NATO. So for example, the French asked us to shoot off Tomahawk missiles. Why? Because we got a huge arsenal of it. And they don't. Um, and you know, because the European foreign defense and security policy has not been created effectively, uh, NATO may take over, but initially we went in without NATO because there was not unanimity to make this a NATO action up to this stage. And also because we were able to get a UN Security Council resolution legalizing and legitimating the intervention there. Um, so the way this European Union evolved was to go towards economic projects and then relive and recreate the political dream of a united Europe politically as time went on. So there's a heavy belief in European values and European aspirations and an eventually United States of Europe at the founding in 1959 and then each of these projects creating nationalist complaints about loss of sovereignty and other growth pains putting putting aside that long-term aspiration. And then the hope is eventually, according to this author, to get back more on that long-term path. Now that seems to be quite iffy just because the growing pains have seems to be quite decisive. And you need a consensus in Europeans to keep ratcheting up the type of activities that the European uh, Union is committed to. Uh, and you need, that consensus has to meet not just economic policies, where there has been a high degree of a consensus, but also ideological, technological, and especially political projects. It's one thing to vote to give up sovereignty, let's say, on tariffs or duties or quotas, because it, it's clear that if I keep the right to put up tariffs and I put up tariffs, they're just going to retaliate with their own tariffs, and then we're not going to be able to trade with each other, so we do need to give up our sovereignty to, to actually make us more nationally powerful. Because we don't want to relive the horrors of the Great Depression, which were hastened and worsened by the onset of the Smoot-Hawley tariff in the United States and the retaliatory tariffs elsewhere. Um, and also, if you believe in liberal economic theory, the goal of improving the economic lives of your citizens is going to be promoted and you're going to be rewarded in the polls, in the elections, uh, if you do improve the economy. And most of the European economies did improve, and in some cases, rapid, massive improvement, like Germany, almost to the point of being an economic miracle. Um, it, this consensus was so deep to proceed on the economic grounds that you had agreement among Christian 
democratic parties of the center-right and socialist parties of the center and left agreeing that this was the way to go. Communists never bought into it. They saw this as a capitalist imperial project designed to improve the uh, riches of the bourgeoisie. And the international capitalist class in Europe are the primary beneficiaries, and the workers were the ones who were being attacked. So even if you are democratic communists, as you did have democratic communist parties in France, Italy, Germany, and elsewhere, especially France and Italy, uh, they uh, were not the mainstream. The socialists were democratic socialists, and they saw uh, this as not a plot to favor international capital, but a way to get greater economic resources to provide better social and economic benefits. Um, now, the question is, is the consensus enlightened, or is there some need for heterodoxy or heresy about the way the project has gone forward? Do the communists have an argument? Who has really benefited from this economic expansion in Europe? Has it just been the capitalists, or have the workers also benefited? After all, Europe has strong trade unions, and they're able to get pretty good benefits. In Europe, the unions have gotten uh, retirement in France at 60, and uh, six weeks of vacation, and contracts that are negotiated for the entire industry rather than the American approach of negotiating contracts uh, company by company at most. Um, but Europe has had higher unemployment than the United States. And because of these structural problems, let's call them liberal or neoliberal or conservative economists would say that actually Europe has harmed its workers, but only because they've given workers too many trade union rights, which is actually not in their enlightened self-interest, because then they get stuck in dinosaur industries that are not competitive, that are obliged to pay you, pay you the kinds of benefits that GM is stuck with, which is, happens whenever you have big, strong, powerful unions who do their job well. Uh, and whereas if you have market forces, some businesses like that would get trimmed down in size, and then the, you, the workers would just get new jobs and new industries. It depends what you like as a lifestyle. In Europe, which is a much older civilization than the United States, and different from the United States, the idea of a good life is to have friends, family meals, slow pace of life, long vacations. And you work hard, but you don't work long hours. As opposed to the Anglo-Saxon model, or the American model, where we work a minimum of a month more per year in terms of total hours, a longer work week, more overtime, and less vacation. Just on average, we work a month more per year, or 160 hours a year more than the average European works, but our standard of living theoretically is higher. Now, it's not actually higher uh, because we're only ranked 20th or 25th, but we believe our standard of living is higher because our gross domestic product is higher because we spend it on things like defense, which the Europeans don't spend it on because they spend it on social benefits and they've got, they're getting a free ride from the United States. The other thing that the European Union has had a consensus on is the creation of civilian states. In Europe, they look at the United States as a militarist state with this enormous amount of money spent, by comparison anyway, with Europe on military expenditures. 
As I said, the United States spends more in the military than the rest of the world combined, and much, much more than even Europe totals. And we're getting into wars all the time. Madeleine Albright said, what's the point of having a beautiful, wonderful army if you don't use it? Well, now the question is, what's, what happens when you have a beautiful, wonderful army and you start using it every time? Are we the world's cop? Is it in our enlightened self-interest to be the world's police office force or not? Whereas in Europe, after World War II, with the repugnance felt towards war, because the war was fought in Europe and not on the United States, except for the attack on Pearl Harbor and a few isolated spying incidents that may have resulted in people getting killed in the United States. But in Europe, they created a civilian state after World War II committed to uh, educating their people, providing health, a high standard of living, and demobilizing their militaries to the bare minimum of what's needed for national protection and defense, but not for launching wars overseas. So you have culturally in Europe a vision of the good life as being one on being educated, working hard, but not being ultra competitive. And the United States, what is regarded as being effective is being super competitive. Um, it's a kind of Nietzschean uh, will to power. All the celebrities are the people who are glamorous because they make lots of money and are very successful. Uh, it's not the intellectuals who are glamorized in France, for example. Or it's not a great symphony where Europe you know, worships its classical and other forms of music. Um, here in the United States, it's the latest Apple device. And the latest, before that, you know, color TVs and all that sort of thing. Uh, and Europe gets those things later and, and, and less fully. So uh, you have two different visions of a way of life, and it's not any coincidence that, you know, our view is competitiveness and their view is solidarity. Their view is, you know, if you don't have a job, you're entitled to two years of wages, or sometimes even longer. In the United States, if you happen to be an insured job, that is a job that's, you know, in a large business, and they paid unemployment insurance, and you got laid off, you might get it for 26 weeks, and now in this deep recession, I think they raised it 39 weeks, but they didn't actually get to a full year. Is that right? I think they just only voted maximum 39 weeks. So even though unemployment has dropped now to closer to 9%, that's still double what it was five or six years ago. And if you don't have any savings, you're out of luck. You get food stamps, but that's about it. Um, now, of course, these are ideal types, and we do have this tendency to stereotype. And obviously, we're talking about in comparison with Europe, the United States is competitive. In comparison with us, there's solidarity. Obviously, there's plenty of things that would show any country not to, to lack solidarity. I suppose Japan, in its current trauma, you know, is showing an amazing solidarity and pitching in and not panicking. Uh, but I think you'd find that in the United States, you know, if we had a national disaster, everyone would stick up with each other regardless of race, color, creed, et cetera. And to some extent, you know, 
um, Americans stick up for Americans, and we haven't totally dismantled our welfare state, but we don't have a welfare state anything like Europe's. Um, and what we do have is a very big military industrial complex, and now since 9-11, not just huge uh, anti-Al-Qaeda intelligence, but a big brother in Orwell's sense of 1980, Orwell's sense of 1984, his famous novel, of spying on us. And essentially now, you can count on the fact that if you are involved in any suspicious activities in any kind of remote, oblique way, like just going to a rally to listen, they know you're there. Because they got satellites that can see everybody there. And they probably, I'm just guessing, but it wouldn't surprise me if they have on their intelligence databases the, the genetic code from the color of the iris of your eye. Well, they have the technology for it. I know that. So all they need to do is take a picture of your iris. And from that, they can get your gene code. And from their database, they know your name. Now, it's against the law in most states to keep a criminal a database of, of DNA data, even for people who've been arrested, unless there's probable cause. But the CIA can do whatever it wants. As long as they got a presidential signature, we don't even know about it. It's secret. And intelligence agencies are remarkably able to carry out this kind of activity. Where does Europe stand now in terms of its direction in 2011? Well, the, the big year was 1992 with the Maastricht Treaty, which created uh, essentially the plan to have a common currency, the euro. Uh, and the Maastricht Treaty promised um, you know, also to have a common foreign policy, and that failed. So one huge success, one huge failure. And then the Lisbon Treaty that became into being in 2011 uh, created a diplomatic service. So although they don't have a common security policy, now the European Union not only has a common foreign aid program, but its own uh, chief foreign minister, who's a British lady politician, and uh, inevitably trying to replace negotiations of each country's own foreign service with their own. Um, to get monetary cohesion has been a, a large success. Not every country joined the Eurozone, but a majority did. Uh, and to get a common capacity for external action still has been a failure. Why did the France and Italy turned to the United States instead of turning to the European Union. After all, the European Union could have done this whole operation. Anyone want to hazard a guess? We've got 27 countries. Does everyone in the European Union think it's in the European Union's interest to get rid of Gaddafi or at least protect lives in Libya? How about to secure the oil in Libya? But the problem is that Gaddafi was getting contracts to British and French and other oil companies around Europe, as well as the United States. So the puzzle is why, given the, all the conspiracy theories about the importance of oil, do we not stick with Gaddafi, who was all, all that ready? Now, he, he was corrupt as heck and wanted all kinds of payoffs, including the court settlement, which some would call blood money, at something like $3 million a victim's family for the Lockerbie bombing. 
when he agreed to pay that return for ending the economic sanctions, he talked to the oil companies say, you got to pay to play. You want to do oil? Pay off these people for us because out of 270 victims times three, that's almost a billion dollars. Three million doesn't sound like a lot of money if you've lost a loved one, but when you think of how many people were killed in that airplane, that's a billion dollars that he can spend on mercenaries to keep him in power. Um, by the way, uh, Gaddafi also has private military contractors from the West, including Israel and the United States, who have helped him out a lot in the last three years. Now, whether they're there this week, given that he's an enemy of the United States, is probably unlikely. But it's quite possible that these people have been all organized by American companies and others. Um, so to conclude today's discussion, I think it, what's important to emphasize is that the European Union continues to be much better at economic cooperation and integration, <laughs> that European society uh, sees its heritage really much more in terms of a common vision of a better life through a better performing economy. But the, the pull of a common European heritage doesn't seem to transcend the bureaucratic political conflicts that exist on foreign policy. That a commitment to the, use the economy to improve the social welfare of the continent uh, being strong suggests that Europe does have a culture of caring more for their people. Oddly enough, it's, it's a much less religious area than the United States. And you'd think, given all the talk in, in the major religions about helping the needy and helping the poor, you'd think we'd have a bigger social welfare state here. But oddly enough, we don't. We have a much lower role for that in the state. That's left to charitable activities. Um, and that's just one of these curiosities or um, way you might consider it to be uh, reflection of, of, of how religious institutions engage in public policy. One of the most difficult things about Europe in the future is how to manage 27 countries and 550 million people. If you're going to go to the next level and encourage much more integration, then you've got to think seriously about creating government structures. And that means not just doing projects where sovereignty is pooled on an ad hoc basis, but actually having a government that acts supranational in its decision-making processes. And that's, that's the big hurdle Europe will always face in the future. Right now, it's a confederation. And how can it get to a federation where the national government is superior on many matters? Right now, it's superior on only those matters that all 27 countries do have a consensus on proceeding. In other words, although they don't have a unanimity principle on very specific, minute actions on a daily basis, the major policy directions for the European Union do require a unanimous consensus. And to do that, there's no consensus on how to go in some major new direction. The national governments value their foreign policy prerogatives. They want to have the right to do what's in their country's national interest. They're all located at a different geographical location in Europe. They face different threats. They, different ha they have different power. Uh, they don't want to have a European army. They don't trust the European army to protect them. 
They don't even have a European rapid reaction force that is trained and run by the European Union. It's a common security and defense policy, meaning that the troops are provided by the sovereign states in the same way that UN peacekeeping missions are provided by the sovereign states. So then what it needs to do is establish a new institution to realize these goals. It needs to establish a European army if it wants to have a common security and defense policy. You need the institutions that are implied by the policy in order to have a sovereign common security policy. And they don't have those institutions because of lack of political will. Similarly, uh, now that the Eurozone is failing in the last two years with the economic crisis in Spain, Portugal, and especially Greece, and the unwillingness beyond a certain point of Germany to fund the bailout packages for Greece, particularly given not only its costs, but the corrupt fraud that was conducted on the books in Greece, one sees not a direction of growth, but a direction of retrenchment to a much narrower view of even how far to go with European uh, monetary policy and the common currency. It may be that Greece would be kicked out of the Eurozone because it's unwilling to meet the monetary and fiscal policy requirements, especially fiscal requirements, and the reporting its fiscal policy with 100% accuracy rather than keeping two sets of books the way small businesses are known to do in, in countries the world over. You know, one set of books for the tax collectors and another set of books for your own self so you know how much profit you actually keep for yourself. So given that set of situations, we're at a moment in time now in European Union history where the effort to move forward is stalling and the movement is actually apparently going backwards rather than forwards. Okay, thank you, and we'll see you on Tuesday, the next chapter in the textbook on global issues.